And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's open the word of truth this morning to John chapter 14. 14th chapter of John, and we will continue with the study of the Upper Room Discourse. This is the teaching of our Lord to the disciples the night before He went to the cross, after they had had the Passover meal, and He had instituted the Lord's Supper as we just celebrated. They then engaged in a discussion, a series of questions and answers between Four of the disciples, Peter in 1336, Thomas in 145, Philip in 148, and then Judas, not Iscariot, in 1422. What initiated this series of question and answers was Jesus' statement in John 13:33. He said, "Little children, I am with you a little while longer." You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also where, am I, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So this is the context. I think it's difficult to understand some of the trains of thought in chapter 14 and 15 unless you understand the context. John has had many years to reflect upon what went on in that conversation and so he's going to synthesize it down for us to just a a few short statements. There are various themes that weave in and out of these statements and as John builds, he sort of unpacks for us this concept of the command, what it means to love one another. For example, Jesus gives the command in 34 and 35 of chapter 13. Then he's interrupted by questions from Simon, Thomas, and Philip. But in his answer to Philip, and by verse 15, Jesus brings the conversation back to the command. The focus of the first three questions has been on eschatological issues. Lord, what do you mean you're leaving? Which was what he stated in verse 33. They're confused. They don't understand the timetable. They expect him to stay to initiate the kingdom at that time, and yet he's talking about leaving. So Jesus deals with those eschatological issues and the underlying questions that are asked by Peter, Thomas, and Philip, and then he brings them back to the importance of the command and says a few more things about love and its relationship to obedience in those verses, and then he will unpack that concept even more for us in chapters 15 and chapter 16. So, this is the context, this commandment, this new mandate that Jesus has given that we are to love 
one another. This is the overriding theme. The second thing we have to note in terms of the context is the statement that Jesus is about to leave. And in these two issues, what it, we learn from John, or John is going to instruct us as to what it means to love as Jesus loved, and then he is going to address the confusion over God's plan, the timetable of God's prophetic plan. Now, this is something, of course, in the last few weeks we've seen too much of on the news as everybody's worried about those radical dispensationalists who are looking for Jesus' return. I don't know if you've noticed that, but, but I've certainly noticed that, that these commentators, that these religious experts that they manage to get on the, on the, on the national news media just don't seem to ever quite understand what the pre-trib rapture dispensational position is that we are not looking. It's not dispensationalists, with few exceptions. Those few really don't understand the core of dispensationalism. With few exceptions, no dispensationalist was looking for Jesus to come. That has to do with an interpretation of prophecy called historicism, as we've studied in the past, that that, that view seeks to find certain elements of prophecy in Matthew 24 and in Revelation in historical events through the church age. As dispensationalists, we are futurists. We believe that God's plan in Matthew 24 is revealed by Jesus. Matthew 24 and in Revelation is yet to be fulfilled in the future and that no prophecy need be fulfilled prior to the rapture. So we're not looking for any signs. In fact, if you do a study of Matthew 24, you'll see that the signs there, the increase of famine, famines and earthquakes and wars all takes place within the seven-year tribulation. Those are not signs that take place prior to that seven-year tribulation. So dispensationalists who understand our theological position are not out here trying to find a return to Jesus on January 1st, 2000. So we weren't disappointed. Others were. But there is seemed to be just as much confusion over when Jesus would come and the eschatological timetable among the disciples as there is today. So, um, in the midst of this context of the fact that Jesus was leaving and His new command to love one another, John wants to highlight a number of crucial doctrines. And to do that, he's going to use this question-answer format. The question by the disciple, and then Jesus' answer as the framework to unpack for us these significant doctrines related to the church age and to the unique spiritual life of the church age. In this dialogue, John is going to help us understand three things. First, what it means to love as Jesus loved. We are going to see Jesus exemplify this to the disciples in this dialogue. In fact, some of you may be surprised, Jesus is going to fairly harshly rebuke Philip for his lack of paying attention and lack of concentration uh, to what has just been said. And we'll see that a little more clearly this morning. So we're going to see what it means to love as Jesus loved. Second, we will see the inadequacy of pre-church age knowledge. Pre-church age knowledge. Now, remember, 
the church age was not instituted until the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. Right here. This is some 50 days after Passover. It was on Passover that Christ was crucified. 40 days after the crucifixion, He ascended to heaven. There's a 10-day gap here. And the disciples were given a temporary endowment of the Holy Spirit to get them through that gap so they could make it and stay in Jerusalem until Pentecost. And it was at that point that the Holy Spirit was given to the church. Now, prior to that time, there is no minus sign here. There is no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there is minus no filling of the Holy Spirit. And so there is no internal dynamic to learn doctrine based upon the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. What we see among the disciples is the same inadequate internal learning system for spiritual things that existed throughout the Old Testament. That's why so many sophisticated doctrines are not developed until the New Testament is because without the teaching of God the Holy Spirit, they just couldn't understand it. And we see that. This is what John is illustrating for us in this whole dynamic is how how dense these disciples seem to be. They just don't get the point. They've been with Jesus over and over and over again for three years. They've heard Him teach these things again and again and again. And it's as if they haven't ever heard a word. He said they just ask the most inane questions. And what's going to happen in this dialogue that we see tonight, or excuse me, this morning, is that Jesus is going to inform them that He is going to send a comforter. He's going to send another helper to be with you forever. And it is part of the function of this helper to teach them doctrine. And so we're going to see the difference. This is one thing John is illustrating for us, is the, the, the problem with learning spiritual truth prior to the cross, and then the, the, the fact that after the cross, when we have the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to fill us, to teach us, that we can understand these fantastic doctrines. And so there's this this subtext to what's going on here. And you have to see this dynamic because John is, the way he weaves this together is to give us the example of, of, of the inadequate knowledge of Peter, Thomas, and Philip. And then in the midst of this, Jesus is going to say that he will give send another helper. So we see first, we're going to see, first of all, what it means to love as Jesus loves. Secondly, the inadequacy of the pre-church age knowledge, despite the fact that they have the highest revelation of God possible. They are walking, eating, sleeping, partying with Jesus. The highest expression of God possible for man under any circumstance. Day in and day out for three years. And Philip says, Lord, Show us what the Father's like. How dense can you be? And it's to illustrate the fact that man on his own, apart from the grace of God in giving us the Holy Spirit, can't receive too much 
spiritual enlightenment. He is hindered by his own finiteness and sinfulness. And so we see the importance of the Holy Spirit and the church age and the dynamics of spirituality based upon the indwelling and filling and teaching of the Holy Spirit and how all of this is foreshadowed right here in the upper room discourse. Now, last time we looked at Peter's question, Lord, where are you going? And we saw that underneath that question is the concept of, of Lord, why are you leaving? Why is there going to be an intervening period? What is the nature of your, your leaving? When are you going to come back? And why are you leaving? And Jesus answered the underlying question, which is their anxiety and confusion over doctrine. Once again, he's taught them time and time again. Remember, even though we did not cover it in the Gospel of John, we know about it from Matthew 24 and the parallel passages in Luke, that Jesus clearly taught them about end-time events in the, in the Olivet Discourse, which did not occur too long, which occurred not too long before the Upper Room Discourse. And yet it still hasn't sunk in. They have no idea when Jesus is coming back. And it's why. Why do we see this, this inability to understand what we all take for granted? We've had it taught many times. You know the basic uh, outline of future events. And yet Jesus had taught these disciples time and time again, and they just couldn't get it. Why? They didn't have the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. This takes us to the doctrine of God's grace provision for learning, the grace learning spiral. The pastor teacher communicates doctrine. It is the Holy Spirit who fills us, who teaches us and makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine. They did not have this. This was gone. They're left on their own finite human resources and human ability to learn, and they just don't get it. That's one reason that God spoke so much to Israel through the sacrificial system, the feast system. Everything was very visible, very visual, hands-on, training aids in order to communicate doctrine because of the lack of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Man was limited in the amount of doctrine he could understand. With the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, when we use 1 John 1, 9 and we're in fellowship, the Holy Spirit makes the doctrine understandable as pneumaticos doctrine. We exercise positive volition to understand it. Because God the Holy Spirit makes it understandable to us, does not mean we will automatically understand it. There are many doctrines of Scripture that I have heard taught many times, and I still have to sit down and really concentrate, take out a pen and paper, and work my way through certain things in order to understand them, because they are difficult. Somebody once said, well, why did God make it so difficult? And the answer is, don't you think that an almighty, infinite, omniscient God is just a little difficult to comprehend and understand. See, man in his arrogance wants to bring God down to our level and, and dumb everything down to sort of a kindergarten, uh, one sentence, uh, one simple sentence construction, and yet God is much more complicated than that, and the doctrine of the Scripture is designed to address every arena of human thought and human intellection. So we have to exercise positive volition 
And the Holy Spirit doesn't just spoon feed it to us as pablum. We have to meditate on it, the Old Testament says. That means we have to think about it, concentrate. We have to cogitate. And we'll see that Philip just absolutely failed to do this. In fact, as soon as Thomas asked the question and Jesus answered it, Philip comes right back and asks the question again. We all have students like that. This is the bane of the pastor's life. You taught for an hour on problems with human viewpoint problem-solving techniques, and then somebody comes up and says, you know, I just found a great way to solve the problems in my life, and they just it's like they never heard a word you said. Or you spend an hour teaching on the rapture, and somebody comes up and says, well, now, wait a minute, what's the rapture? Well, where were you for the last hour? Well, that's, that's how Philip is. We're going to see that from Philip. The Lord answers the question from Thomas. How do we know where you're going and how do we know the way? And Jesus concludes by saying, If you had known me, in verse 7, you would have known my Father. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Philip, I just answered the question. So we see a little. the Lord's going to rebuke him, but we also see his patience in going over it again and again and again. But the grace system is not in place here because there's no indwelling or teaching of the Holy Spirit. That's yet promised. But this is what we have. The Holy Spirit makes it pneumaticos doctrine understandable to us. We think about it. We cogitate on it. Over a period of time, we understand it. And it is gnosis in the uh, this blue circle, which is the noose, the outer part of our thinking. And then we have to accept, accept it. That's positive volition again. First of all, we understand it, it becomes gnosis. Then we have to decide whether or not we believe it and accept it as true. And when we do, the Holy Spirit then assimilates it into the innermost part of the thinking of our soul, the cardia. Now, for this to take place, we don't just hear it once. We have to hear it again and again and again. We have to continuously be reminded of what God has done for us. We need to hear these doctrines over and over and over again because the natural inclination of our soul, because of the influence of the sin nature, is to forget these things, is to constantly try to slip back into self-autonomy and independence from God and try to solve all our problems our own way apart from doctrine. So we're going to see the need for this and the remarkable provision that God has given us. Now, Peter asks his question, and the Lord answers it. And at the conclusion in verse 4, he says, And you know the way where I am going. Well, Thomas has been sitting there, and he's been scratching his head. He says, Wait wait a minute, Lord. We don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And the Lord answers him with the seventh of the famous I am statements made in the Gospel of John. Jesus said unto him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has made six other I am statements in the uh, Gospel of John. The significance of this, of course, stems from the Greek word as we have studied, the phrase, ego eimi. Ego is the E-G-O, and that is the first person singular pronoun for I. Eimi is the present active indicative first person singular of the verb to be and it simply means here we have the first person singular and a me is also first person singular and all you would have to do to communicate the idea that I am is to say a me 
the pronoun is included within the morphology of the verb. So when you attach the pronoun to it, that's for emphasis. And this is a clear statement that Jesus is referring to himself as the God of the Old Testament, the sacred tetragrammaton YHWH, Yahweh, which comes from the Hebrew verb Hayah, which means to be, and means that God has called himself by the name Yahweh, saying that I am who am. I am the God who continually exists. So each of these statements reflects the eternality of Jesus Christ. In John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. In John 8.12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. In John 8.58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born... I am. Before Abraham came into existence, I was continually in existence. And we saw how the Pharisees understood his claim to deity at that point, and they reached for stones to stone him for blasphemy. In John 10:7, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10:11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John 11:25, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And now in John 14:6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in the construction in the Greek, he makes the statement, ego in me, and then he repeats the article and the conjunction in each one. So he is making three claims. He is claiming, he is saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So he is making three distinct claims about his person. He is claiming that he is the only way to God. And furthermore, he is claiming not only to be the only way to the ultimate end, but he is the ultimate end. He is the truth and he is the life. In him, John said, was life. And that life was the light of the world. So Jesus is making a profound claim about himself here that he is not only the means to the end, he is the, to be identified with the end itself. I am always amazed at how you run into various people who, who want to claim that that uh, Christianity is like all the other religions, and there's many, many different ways to God, many different ways to heaven. And I just wish that unbelievers would get the point that Christianity claims to be the exclusive way. It's not like every other way. It's not like Buddhism or, or Hinduism or Islam. It's not like any other world religion. It is distinct, and it claims to be the one and only way to having a relationship with God. And Jesus claimed exclusivity. He is the only way. He is the truth. Truth resides in Him. There's also an illusion, an illusion here because of what Jesus says later on. He says, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So if we're sanctified in truth, the word, the logos, is truth. The word of God is truth. Then we see Jesus saying He is the truth. He is the Word of God. And of course, Paul refers to this 
in 1 Corinthians 2.16 by saying that the Word, calling the Scripture, the mind of Christ. So we have the mind of Christ right here before us. This is the most remarkable thing that we can become aware of is that you and I as finite creatures have access to the very mind of Jesus Christ, to all of the opinions of God about everything in human existence. We have, we have access to that in the Word of God. And Jesus is and claims to be the absolute truth and that by following that path, that is the only way to true life, not simply biological life, having a heartbeat, having an existence, being able to go about the regular affairs of, of day-to-day life, but to have meaning, significance, and value in life, and to have real abiding happiness and contentment in life. Jesus claims to be the only way. And then in verse 7, he says, If you had known me, and it's a first-class condition, so he does recognize the fact that there is a partial knowledge of him, and he uses the word gnosko in the Greek, which indicates a progress of knowledge. We're going to see a, a shift back and forth between two different Greek words for knowledge in this section. One is gnosko, which indicates the process of learning. G-I-N-O-S-K-O, and that indicates process. As a teacher teaches, you learn a line, here a line, there a line, a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. And then oida, O-I-D-A, indicates full knowledge. So where the words are, sometimes they're used synonymously, but where there's a distinction, where there's an interchange back and forth in a passage, gnosko indicates the process and is somewhat analogous to to gnosis, to the accumulation of academic knowledge. And oida is full knowledge and is somewhat akin to epignosis. Now, Jesus says, if you had known me, and by using a first-class condition, he recognizes that in the past they have had some knowledge, but not full knowledge of him. He says, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. So the perfect tense focuses on past actions are the current results of past actions. If you had known me, if you had known me in the past fully with results that go on, you would have known my father. So what we're seeing here as one of the underlying themes is the strong affirmation of Jesus' deity and the teaching of the dynamics of the Trinity. This is one of the strongest sections in John 14 through 16 to substantiate the doctrine of the Trinity. Last time we saw this alluded to in 14.1 because of the way it's arranged in the Greek. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. In me also believe. And we saw that's called a chiasm. And when you link your two terms, you have uh, terms like this AB and then B1 and A1. And Jesus says, believe in God, and then in me, also believe, he is emphasizing the two middle terms and seeing them as synonymous. Belief in God is synonymous to belief in him, which is a strong statement of his own deity. And now he expands on that. And he says knowledge of him is the same as knowing the Father. And this really blows Philip's mind. 
and he hasn't quite followed the discussion, and, and he seems to be a little slow, and he's not really concentrating. Maybe he's still thinking about what Jesus said to Peter, and he just didn't quite catch what Thomas was saying. You see, this is a problem. He, he, with many people, when they come to, to Bible classes, they're not prepared to learn. And see, when you come to church, when you come to Bible class, our purpose here is to learn. I, I, I'm amazed at how we're losing the educational model for the church and in and, and churches today. The purpose for coming to church is not so we can feel close to God. The purpose for coming to church is to learn about God. That's the highest way in which we can worship God is to learn who He is and what His plan is for our life. So we're here to learn. We're here to, to have our thinking completely renovated. And that means that we have to concentrate. It's important to take notes. It's important to study, go back over these things again during the week. But so often what happens is people come in and they're not used to learning. They're not used to having their brain challenged a little bit. And they sit down and five minutes later they're thinking about something else. And that's kind of the way Philip is. Even after three years with the Lord, he can't quite keep his mind focused. And so even though Thomas has asked the question already and received an answer, Philip repeats the question. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, he starts off with the Greek word, dek numi. This isn't just simply, you know, show us or demonstrate for us. It's a much stronger word than that. D-E-I-K-N-U-M-I. I. Deknumi means more than simply to show. It means to make known the character or significance of something through various visual, auditory, gestural, or linguistic means. But it goes beyond that. It has the idea in John's Gospel because of its emphasis on the signs of Jesus' deity and his signs of his Messiahship. It takes on the additional concept of to reveal or to disclose. So John uses Deknumi in a much more technical sense. And so Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Reveal to us the Father. That's what he's asking. He's looking for some sort of manifestation of God. He says, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And the word translated enough is the verb arkeo. A-R-K-E-O, which means to be completely satisfied and thus content. In Greek thought, it was often used for happiness because you have realized your ultimate goal and purpose in life. So Philip is asking for a lot, isn't he? He's saying, Lord, we, we really want a theophany. Now, remember, a theophany refers to an appearance of God to man. Theophany always relates to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Remember John chapter 1? John told us that no one has seen the Father at any time. This was in John 1.18. No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten, the unique one, He has revealed or exegeted Him to us. So no one has ever seen God the Father. They have only seen uh, manifestations of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who reveals God 
to us. So a theophany is the appearance to man in the Old Testament of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who is the manifested person of the Trinity. Now, it sounds like Philip may be asking a somewhat simple question, but what he's really asking for is an appearance of the glory of God, much like the glory of God that appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai or appeared to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. But what is Philip really asking? What, what underlies this question? He's wanting a manifestation of the glory of God and to know God in his fullest. Remember, Jesus had just said, from now on you know him and have seen him. And this phrase, to know God, has eschatological significance. The Jew, when they heard this, it immediately rang some bells related to Old Testament revelation. Turn with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. And we'll see a little background. In the Old Testament, it is said that God knows man. But rarely does it say that man knows God. And these passages, for example, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, reflects the limited knowledge that man has of God. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. I want you to notice, just by way of observation, the mention of the three aspects of the integrity of God here. The love of God, His faithful covenant love, which is the the word chesed in the Hebrew, along with His justice and His righteousness. You have the threefold mention of those attributes there. And the Lord says, I delight in these things. But He states here in verse 24 that the goal of our life, what gives meaning and definition and value to our lives, and hence what makes us happy, what gives us real contentment and tranquility, is to know God. Not simply to know about God, but we learn all these things about God because that drives us to a relationship with Him. It's not simply an accumulation of academic data about from the Bible about God and who He is, but that the goal is... For man, the goal is to know God. If you grew up a Presbyterian and you had to memorize the Westminster Confession of Faith, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? Is to know God and to glorify Him forever. For that is our purpose. That is what gives us meaning and value in life, is to know God. Now, if you were to go back to five minutes after God created Adam, Think about Adam for a minute. And Adam was given certain responsibilities. Even in the garden, he had responsibilities and he had work to do. He had to take care of the garden and to guard it. He had to cultivate it. He was responsible for classifying, categorizing, naming all of the animals. But what would Adam do when he finished? Have you ever thought about that? 
Adam was not going to die, so there would come a time when, when his chores would be done. And then what? Well, every day the Lord came and walked in the garden with Adam to teach him about himself. And it was in that that Adam found his ultimate purpose and meaning in life was to develop that relationship with the second person of the Trinity. But after the fall, after his sin and the collapse of the human race under the curse of sin, that relationship is hindered. Now, the ultimate goal of man is to know God, and God promises that that will happen at a very specific time. Turn with me in Jeremiah to Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. Now, this morning, we celebrated the Lord's table. When we came to the cup, we, I recited Jesus' words at the Last Supper when he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Well, this passage in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34 is a new covenant passage. And this tells us about what it will be like when God establishes the new covenant with Israel. Now, we must have a couple of minutes of of, uh, orientation here or we won't understand the new covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that involved uh, three promises. The land, a seed, and blessing. The land represents the land grant covenant of the uh, what is sometimes called the Palestinian covenant, but which I prefer to call the land covenant or the real estate covenant. That's, our, that's given a specific piece of real estate that God promised to give the descendants of Abraham. The seed is ultimately fulfilled. So we'll just call this the land covenant. The seed is ultimately fulfilled through the Davidic covenant in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Davidic covenant expands upon the second provision of the Abrahamic covenant. And then the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is further expanded in the new covenant. In the blessing provision in the Abrahamic covenant, God said to Abraham, through you I will bless all nations. So it is the blessing that goes first to Abraham and all Jews and that proceeds through them then to all mankind. Now in the new covenant, it is established in the passages in question in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel and Hebrews Every time it's mentioned, God says, I am making a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Never mentions the church as a covenant partner. But just as God made a covenant with, God made a covenant with Abraham, and through Abraham he would then bless all, God is making a new covenant with Israel, as the covenant partner, and the byproduct of that, and through that, all mankind is blessed. And that comes about through the cross. And so we become, Paul says, ministers of the new covenant, because we are proclaiming the good news, the gospel of reconciliation. So we are ministers of the new covenant. That does not mean that we are new covenant 
partners. We're not part of the contract. Now, that's very important for a lot of different reasons, but part of which is that a lot of the facets of the application of the New Covenant are not in effect today. New Covenant does not come into effect for Israel until Jesus Christ returns at the Second Coming. So here we are, the cross, then we have the church age, church age ends with the rapture, and then there's the seven years of the tribulation, which fulfills the last seven weeks of Daniel, seven days of Daniel, 70 weeks for Israel, and then Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the second coming, and then he establishes his 1,000 year reign. We're going to start calling it the 1,000 year reign because everybody's going to confuse it with all this hubbub about the millennium. That is traditionally called the millennial reign of Christ, from the Latin word milli, meaning 1,000, but we'll just call it the 1,000 year reign of Christ, and that ends with the great white throne judgment and the Gog and Magog revolution prior to that. But the point that I'm trying to make is that it is not until the second coming when Israel, regenerate Israel is restored and given the land and we have the, the messianic kingdom. It is not until that point that the new covenant goes into effect. Now, that's the background. Jeremiah 31 describes it. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. Notice, not with the church. With the house of Israel after those days. That's the tribulation. Declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. In other words, every single believer will know doctrine. It will be evident within them. Just as, it's the same phraseology you have in Romans 1, where God says that every unbeliever has the knowledge of God within them, God consciousness. So every believer will have the law of God within them, and on their heart, that is, on their mind, I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Notice verse 34, And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother. Why? No need for the gift of pastor teacher. I'll be out of a job. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not trained to do anything else. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So what is one of the characteristics of the millennial kingdom? Every individual will have a full knowledge of God. So when you were talked to a Jew about knowing God, guess what would come into their mind? The new covenant kingdom promises that at that time when the Messiah comes in his kingdom, we will all know God. And so what has Jesus been doing? He's been proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And there were, they asked the question in Acts 1.5, Lord, is it now that you're going to bring in the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. So what we see is at the upper room, they're still concerned about this plan of God. They can't... Figure it out. What's the timetable here, Lord? So Philip, is the underlying question is, is this the time of the king? It's the same thing that Peter's asking. Where are you going? Why are you going? Why are you leaving? Isn't this the time? I don't understand. I can't put it together. They didn't have a copy of the late great planet Earth to help them out. I just wanted to see if anybody was still awake this morning. So Philip is really concerned, and he just can't quite figure this out. 
So he's asking all of these basic questions. He wants to have, in some sense, he's also asking for a preview of the Messianic kingdom. He wants to see this kind of thing taking place right now at this particular time. So what are the implications of all of this? Well, Jesus has just said that these men had been walking and talking and spending time with him for three years, and he has said in verse 7 that knowing him was equivalent to knowing the Father. That as far as man was concerned in time, as far as flesh and blood, material man was concerned, the revelation that they had of God in him was the fullest there ever could be. If you want to know God, you have to look at Jesus. There's no other way to do it. There's no additional revelation that that can expand it. The fullest and highest and greatest revelation of the essence of God, who God is and what He is like, is in Jesus Christ. That revelation is complete for all time and all history. There's no need to add to it. There's no need for Muhammad to come along with an additional revelation in the Koran. There's no need for Joseph Smith to come along with an additional revelation of the Book of Mormon. What Jesus is saying is, I have given you the complete and final revelation of God, and if you really want to know Him, all you do is look at me, Philip. Thomas, all you do is look at me. And Thomas is saying, well, wait a minute, I can't can't quite get it. What's hindering him? What's hindering him is... He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That's the point. That, that's where we're headed in this discourse. John is showing the need for having the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit. John 1.18, John had said that Jesus is the one, the only begotten. He is the one who has explained, exegeted. It's the Greek word exegeo from which we get our word exegete. He is the one who has fully explained the Father. The second implication of this is not only is Jesus the highest revelation, not only is he the, the, the fullest expression of God in history, but this is a major correction to all Greek and Hebrew thinking. The Jews had been thinking chronologically that you can't really know God until the future. And Jesus is saying, no, you can have a full knowledge of God right now. It's incarnate before you. The Greeks thought you couldn't know God historically at all, that there was no such thing as a space-time representation of God. All you have is an ideal. And Jesus is saying, that that was the problem with Gnosticism, is they came along and said, God can't be in the flesh, because the flesh is naturally corrupt. And Jesus is saying, no, And the gospel is saying, no, that the second person of the Trinity has been made flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14. The third implication here affects your attitude and my attitude towards the Bible. The Bible is called the mind of Christ. It is the word of Christ. How you respond to the Bible is identical to how you respond to God. See, there are some people who will say, well, you know, I, I want to have a relationship with God, but I don't really like the Bible. What Jesus is saying is, I, if you look at me, you're looking at the Father. 
If you listen to my words, you're listening to the words of the Father. The Bible is the mind of Christ. How you respond to the mind of Christ is how you respond to God. If you sit here in Bible class and say, well, I like this, but I don't like that, then you're saying, well, there's some things about God I like and some things about God I don't like. You're sitting, you're doing the same thing Eve did in the garden. The serpent came along and said, well, did God really say this? So Eve set herself up in judgment to evaluate the veracity of God's mandate in the garden. She put herself in a position to judge God. And see, this is what happens. People come and they say, well, I'll pick and choose, and I'll look at the Bible, I'll take what I want, and reject what I, what I don't want. And how you respond to the Bible and to Bible doctrine is how you respond to the person of God. Jesus answers Philip in verse 9 with a rebuke. He said to him, Have I been so long with you? Notice he says, Have I been so long with you? Not Philip, have you been so long with me? See, the point is not that Philip has been wanting to be with Jesus, but that Jesus is the one who chose Philip. says, Philip, have I been with you so long, it's been three years now, and yet you have not come to know me. And New American Standard does an adequate job of translating that. It's gnosko in the, in the Greek, which indicates that process of learning. You haven't really come very far in your knowledge, have you, Philip? And then Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, he's already said in verse 7, To know me is to know the Father. Now he says, To see me is to see the Father. Profound claims to deity. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Literally what Jesus says here is not, have I been so long with you? But he uses the present tense of Amy. He says, am I with you all so long? And he refers in the plural to all of the disciples. He says, have I been with you all so long a time? And yet you, Philip, you have not known There are no present results of a past action of your knowledge. You haven't come very far in your learning. You've just got some academic knowledge, but it has not yet become epinosis in your soul. It's just academic knowledge. So we see the difference between gnosko and oida. Gnosko suggests that a process of learning. In John 8.55, Jesus says, You have not known, that is, you have not begun to know Him, But I know him, referring to the Father, and there he uses oida. I have full knowledge, perfect knowledge of him. John 13, 7, Jesus said, What I do, when he's referring to the foot washing, what I do, you don't know. Oida, Peter, you don't fully comprehend it right now, but you will in the future. See, the problem is that under the Old Testament system of learning doctrine, they did not have the Holy Spirit to help them understand all the significance of what was said, and so they were constantly bumping up that wall, against that wall of human limitation. So Jesus is making that clear to them in this whole conversation. Why don't you know these things? You've learned and you've learned and you've learned. You've been exposed to it again and again and again, but you just don't get it. And so there is a very strong rebuke here in, implied in what Jesus is saying. Philip, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. You're not concentrating. So remember, Jesus just said you're to love one another as I loved you. How is he loving Philip? 
he's straightening him out. He's confronting him. He's rebuking him with his failure to think and to concentrate and to really come to a knowledge. See, Peter knew more than Thomas did. Thomas knew more than Philip did. And Philip understands things a little more, perhaps, than Judas does. In 14.10, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father? Notice the solution is faith. Faith is the presupposition of all knowledge. St. Augustine, who was a 4th century uh, bishop of Hippo in North Africa and was said some brilliant things and said some almost heretical things at times, made the comment, though, that I believe that I may know. You see, the presupposition of all true knowledge is authority orientation to the revelation of God. We have to start there. If we start anywhere else, then we are locating ultimate authority in creation, either in empiricism or in rationalism. And Jesus is saying that the solution here to really know the Father is you have to start off with faith alone in the revelation of God. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? So here he is claiming identical essence. This is There are three things we're going to see here in relationship to the Trinity. The first is that a starting point, and I think it's interesting, and if we were going to take some time to develop this out in terms of the whole theory of epistemology, we would have to spend a lot of time thinking about the implications of verse 10. For what Jesus is saying is that the starting point of all knowledge is faith, and the starting point of faith is the Trinity. And you have to understand the significance of the Trinity, that the ultimate reality in the universe is a God who is at one time one and many. He is Unity and diversity. He, and this explains the fact that, that the biggest problem or resolves the biggest conundrum for philosophy, which is how can you explain the existence of universals, unity, and the existence of particulars and give meaning to both? Now, we don't have time to get into that. That's just to whet the intellectual appetite of some of you that the Bible actually solves the greatest problems that philosophers ever come up with intellectually. And it's only as a starting point in the person of the Trinity, the triune God, that we can ever hope to answer the problems of life. So Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, But the Father who dwells, literally, who dwells in me, does His work. So we see the intimate association between the Father. First of all, He says that they're identical in essence. They're co-equal, co-eternal, and co-infinite. So there is a unity in the Trinity. Secondly, we see that there is a functional or an economic distinction in the Trinity. They have different roles. He says the Father works in me. We are distinct persons And we have distinct roles, but we are one and the same. Now, one of the reasons this is important is because when you come to this issue of unity and diversity, that you can be equal in essence and be subordinate in role 
without sacrificing your equality of essence. Now, why is that important? Because this goes to the underlying assumption of the entire feminist movement. The entire feminist movement says that men and women are to be equal, but if you can either be equal or you can be subordinate. And the underlying assumption of the feminist movement is subordination of role within the family, within the marriage, means a lack of equality. And that's not true. If you accept that, it's true. You have to reject the Trinity to be logically consistent. See, what the Scripture says, it's only in Christianity that you're going to have the basis for being able to have a marriage that resolves the problems created by the fall where you have the the woman wanting to rule the man and the man wanting to dominate the woman. And it's only in Christianity, starting with an honest understanding of the Trinity and Trinitarianism, that you're going to be able to give equal value as persons to both man and woman in the marriage and then still maintain a proper subordination of role without destroying each person's individual uniqueness and identity. So all of this has tremendous applications for everything. The the applications of this for political thought. Just think about the difference. When you emphasize unity, the one, you always end up in totalitarianism. The state is all in all. When you emphasize the many to the exclusion of the one, you end up in anarchy. See, the implications of Trinitarianism for every arena of thought in life is phenomenal. And yet, very few people ever take the time to try to unpack what these things mean and their significance for our lives. Well, we'll stop here in verse 11. We'll pick up there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your word, for, for all that it has, that it is, it is more than we could ever, ever come to grips with in a lifetime of study. We thank you that it all points to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the revealer of the Godhead. He is the exegete of the Godhead. He is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us to go to the cross. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, who is unsure of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that certain. The Scripture says all you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't need to raise your hand, walk an aisle, pay money to the church, join a church, promise self-reformation or anything else. All you have to do is accept the gift of Jesus Christ as your Savior. Just believe. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, God the Father knows that. And from that point on, you have eternal life. You're a regenerate. You're an eternal child of God, and you can never lose that salvation. Father, we thank you for what we have learned in your word today about the unique person of all history, our Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us. And may it drive us to to want to know him better and have a closer relationship with, with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.